Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Comic Source Podcast. I'm your host, Jace. This is your new Comics Wednesday episode for December 1st, 2021. Here we are, the month of Christmas, the last month of the year. I cannot believe how fast this year has gone by. Uh, I think I say that every December. <laughs> it feels like they go faster and faster every year. Uh, as I get older, it's pretty crazy. But yeah, I just feel like I just put the Christmas decorations up and now we're now we have put them up again. So uh, anyway, hope you all have a great holiday season. We will have the 12 days of the comic source again, as we do every year. Not quite sure what exactly I'm going to do this year. I, I was thinking foolishly probably about doing what we did last year, where the first day of comic source is one episode, second day, two, three, four, all the way up to 12. It adds up to 78 episodes, which is a lot. And I was supposed to start recording them early last year, and I didn't. And uh, some of them came out even a little bit after Christmas. So if I'm going to do that. I need to get in gear, but things have just been crazy busy lately and I haven't gotten it started yet. Although I've reached out to some creators who haven't been on the show in a while. So we should have some of those coming up, but as soon as I have the details, I'll let everybody know definitely by next week's uh, new comic Wednesday episode, I'll, I'll know what's going on. So be sure you're following us on social media. I'll make an announcement there. Uh, but anyway, let's dive into the books because there's 19 books to talk about. Uh, it's so strange. Um, I mean, I guess it's the first Wednesday of the month. Usually when there's five Wednesdays or in the case of DC, five Tuesdays in a month, that that last release day, that fifth release day is kind of where they put regular uh, or not regular, but put annuals and specials and things that aren't just regular issues of the series because normally everything is on a you know four week cycle. So when you get that extra release day, you kind of dump everything there. And so it tends to be a smaller release day normally. But if you guys listen to our uh, DC Spotlight yesterday, full spoilers in DC Spotlights, don't forget, uh, you'll know that there were 17 DC books released. 17. It was a huge week. And in a way, and we talked about this on the episode, in a way, it was a disservice to a lot of the books because there were so many great books that you couldn't really focus. You know, obviously, Wonder Woman Historia incredible book going to be on my list of best books of 2021 most likely uh but human target any other week any other week human target would have been my book of the week it was amazing didn't make it wonder woman historia was there we had fear state omega wrapping up that big event we had uh, a great issue of action comics we had justice league incarnate starting the next chapter of joshua williamson's big epic dc crisis fixed omniverse story so a lot of great books, but nothing really got the spotlight as much as we tried to put it on Wonder Woman Historia. I think, and I think we were successful. There were other things that deserved a spotlight as well. So just kind of weird that DC would do that. Um, maybe it's paper shortage and what have you, who knows? Um, but all that being said, it was, it's a huge week. Like I said, 19 books here when we're doing uh, the first week of December. Uh, and then, you know, usually toward the end of December, it comes toward the end of the year, Things are usually a little um, lighter, I guess we'll say, in terms of releases. You know, a lot of publishers, uh, publishers, you know, close up shop for the last couple of weeks of the year and what have you. So uh, maybe that's why this month is first week is so front loaded. But anyway, there's a tons of there's a ton of books to get through, as I said. Uh, so I'm going to go through them. I guess you'd say relatively quickly. I mean, not I'm not going to short shift them by any means, but. Uh, don't forget, as I said, DC Spotlight was yesterday. If you're looking for uh, inf info about the DC books for this week, go check that out. Be warned, 
Rocky and I, Rocky from Comic Boom and I go deep into the stories and the events and what happens in those DC books. So read the books first if you don't want them spoiled. As opposed to New Comics Wednesday, which we always do spoiler free. I'll talk about the books in general, kind of what I thought about them, but it'll be up to you to read them and find out what happens. So let's dive in. Amazing Spider-Man number 80 is the first book I'm going to talk about. Writer is Cody Ziegler. The art is by Michael Dowling. Jesus Arbatov with Eric Arsenega does the colors. And we have Joe Caramagna on letters. Uh, I talked a little bit last time about this writer's room style approach that uh, Marvel has on Amazing Spider-Man right now. And it makes sense. You need a lot of writers, I guess, when you're doing this many books. It's basically a weekly book at this point. It's certainly not unheard of. We've seen it happen, you know, in Countdown and 52 and Batman Eternal, Batman and Robin Eternal, that, that kind of thing. Unless you're writing way ahead of time, it's hard to script you know, a book a week, I imagine, especially most writers are writing more than one book. So they've taken this um, this sort of writer's room approach, sort of like TV does. But the problem is when, like Cody Ziegler, for example, is listed as the writer for this one. So I'm taking that to mean he actually scripted the book everybody's planning everybody in this whole beyond board is what they call it. Obviously is pl- helping plot the book. Ziegler probably did more work on this one than anybody else. But uh, again, I mentioned it last time. It's a little inconsistent in tone with the vernacular, the vocabulary, the, the words that are coming out of the character's mouth. And it's because the writer is not the scripter the person that's actually putting the words in the character's mouth is not the same from issue to issue. That being said, Last issue was Cody Ziegler. This issue is Cody Ziegler. So it's not it's not a you know, big difference from, from last issue, but um, I am noticing a little inconsistency in tone uh, that I wish wasn't there. Maybe if these, maybe as it goes along, it'll get better. Uh, I, I'm, I'm hoping, I think I've seen a little bit of that, maybe too soon to tell, but uh, I'm hoping that might be the case as these writers work more together and kind of come up with a system or what have you. But as far as the story itself, we saw... Uh, at the end of last issue, Ben Riley was um, ambushed by Craven, got hit with some darts that are making him see things. And so that's what continues in this issue. Uh, and it feels a little bit like setup. There's not this huge, giant confrontation with Craven that, you know, fills the issue with action or whatever. It's, it's, they fight, certainly, um, but it feels more like foreshadowing of, of something else. Uh, and that takes up about half of the book. Uh, the other half of the book seems to be the reactions of Beyond to being out of touch with Ben Riley. You know, we saw last issue that he had sort of hacked the technology of his costume to sort of turn off Big Brother, so to speak. Um, and we start to see some fallout of that. Again, there's hints that the Beyond Corporation, despite their wanting to portray themselves as a benevolent corporation, that they have some sinister or not so positive goals in mind. Maybe it's an end justifies the means sort of thing. What's in it for them, basically. I mean, they're a giant soulless corporation. And in my mind, they're all bad. You know what I mean? Uh, Especially in a comic. So uh, I'm sure Ben's going to eventually regret throwing in with them, Uh, except he does get a cool costume out of it. So I guess there's, there's that to be said. There's also a little bit of a, an epilogue with Aunt May I, I, the Aunt May of recent years is so interesting to me because, you know, I, I grew up with the the very sort of old and feeble Aunt May and this new Aunt May 
that we've had here in, in the beyond uh, from the beyond board is, is so much more capable and kind of kick kick butt. And so I'm I'm sort of of two minds about it. I, I like that Aunt May's a strong, capable older woman, but at the same time, it's it doesn't even seem like Aunt May to me, you know. So maybe that's just a personal thing. But there's a little epilogue um, which tells us it's going to be continued in Amazing Spider-Man 80 dot b-e-y so we're getting another one of those dot issues which i'm not a big fan of if it's important enough to put in a dot issue just put it in the rig just put it just call it 81 and let's move on with our lives you know i don't know why we need these dot issues uh kind of bugs me but uh overall decent issue the michael dowling art is, is fantastic especially he does an especially good job with sort of the psychedelic portions of the story which i, I really liked um because you can tell the rest of the story were Ben Riley's not seen things. The line work is really clean, um, but he does a good job of of kind of giving a more ethereal style when uh, when Ben is seeing things. Um, and it, I wouldn't really want a, a comic in that style. I mean, it's almost Department of Truth like in terms of you know watercolorish, um, and it's it's just not the style I like. But it works here because the style cleans up as Ben. Uh, sort of comes out of it, so to speak. So uh, anyway, that's Amazing Spider-Man number 80. I'm, I am enjoying this title more now than I have in a long time. So if you're a Spider-Man fan, you jumped off because Dick Spencer was taking forever to get to the point. Might not be a bad time to jump back on. Uh, okay, up next, I'm going to talk about uh, Avengers number 50. It's Legacy number 750. Now, um, full disclosure, I haven't read any of Jason Aaron's Avengers. I, I've wanted to. I've picked up issues here or there, wanted to jump on haven't uh but figured this was a big one i check it out kind of see where it's at it is a good jumping on point i wasn't totally lost there's a few things that were referenced here that i I don't know if it's just aaron you know throwing references out there that he's going to build on later or if he's referring back to previous stuff uh from the run so uh but but i enjoyed it it's a huge issue it's 80 pages Uh, i'm not sure how much it is uh obviously i have my my preview copy here probably 10 bucks or somewhere around there. Uh, but it is written by Jason Aaron. As I said, we have uh, Aaron Cutter, Carlos Pacheco, Rafael Fonterez, Ed McGinnis, and Javier Guerin on uh, the art colors by Alex Sinclair, David Curiel, Matt Hollinsworth, and Rochelle Rosenberg. There's uh, an Avengers mountain pinup that's uh, drawn by David Baldion with colors by Israel Silva. And then there's um, a backup story, The Two Worthies uh, by Christopher Ruccio and Steve McNiven, colors by Frank Diarmada. Letters in the whole book are by Corey Petit, uh, and I did I did enjoy this, um, especially that that backup story. It's a Thor story, and the art. I mean, Steve McNiven, Steve McNiven drawing Thor, <laughs> that was awesome. Um, as far as the regular story, again, I don't know how much it ties into anything that um, Aaron has done before, but there's a lot of little threads, little vignettes that we get that give context to the story. Uh, and as the story goes on, they sort of start tying together. So it, it's it's actually hard. For, for an 80-page book, I think Aaron packs a huge amount of story in here. Obviously, he has that crutch of having a lot of pages. But the thing about it is I can't even talk in generalities about any of the events that happen because it all feels like spoilers. It all feels important. Um and I think that's great. Like this, this is making me want to 
go back and read issues one through 49. And I, I think that's what you want a big anniversary issue to do. Like if this wasn't number 50, if this wasn't Avengers number legacy, number 750, uh, if I hadn't sort of, I think I heard somewhere it was the start of a, you know, sort of his new or his next big storyline. So again, I thought good jumping on point. If none of those things were the case, I wouldn't have picked it up. So I know I'm not going to be the only one that's jumping onto Avengers right now because they've heard it's a good jumping on point or, you know, it's an exercise issue. It's legacy 750. There's a lot of reasons to jump on. Um, And again, I don't want to spoil anything, but I loved it. It was great. Um, I haven't been a fan. I mean, part of the reason I didn't jump on the Jason Aaron Avengers was I didn't like the take on She-Hulk. And, you know, we know that's sort of changing, excuse me, probably because of the She-Hulk TV show that's coming. So I'm I'm glad to get back to the classic She-Hulk, but there's other great concepts in here. And we're getting, you know, just a little hint of it here or a little hint of it there. Um, and, and of the Jason Aaron stuff that I have read, like the Heroes Reborn sort of callback um, that was okay, if not a little underwhelming, there's even a, a you know reference to that story in here. So, so because of that, I do think that a lot of the, the references here uh, for people that have been reading Aaron's run all along, it's going to be a good payoff and touchstone to you. And you're probably going to enjoy it even more than me with more context. Um, but that being said, like I, I was saying, this is really good. There, there's, he breaks it up into chapters, like the way he has the story structured, where you get just a little bit of a story with a really cool idea, and then he jumps to something else. Um, and I, I feel like that keeps the this eighty pager moving. Like a lot of times, you read an eighty page book, um, and you're like, oh man, I got to take a break part way through. You know, that's not the case here. Um, and there certainly are events. It's not like, you know, 80 pages with 10 chapters or whatever. And every chapter is completely different. He does come back to some storylines. You do see some things pay off. And the last issue of the regular or last page of the regular story is a really cool idea. And one that, I, you know, I didn't see coming at all. I thought it was really cool. <clears throat> so I can't wait to see how that plays out. So that being said, I guess I'm reading Avengers now, starting with issue 50. Maybe I'll go back and check out. Uh, the previous 49, even if it does have a, a version of She-Hulk that I don't really care for. Um, Cause I think Manny was reading offenders when it first launched and was saying good things about it, but there was a couple laugh out loud moments, especially one with, uh, with Namor and She-Hulk that I really loved. Um, it's got a ton of characters in it, different characters. Um, the antagonists make sense. What, what we're seeing here, this idea of, of who the antagonists are is a great idea. Um, so yeah, there's just a lot to like here. If you haven't been reading Avengers at all, for whatever reason, um, and you feel like jumping on to, to pick this up again, it's, it's 10 bucks. It's not cheap, but you get a lot of bang for your buck. And I promise you after reading this, you're going to know if you're going to be in and you're going to jump on, or you're like, no, that's not for me, but there's so many cool ideas. And I wonder when it goes to issue 51 or, or legacy 751, like does, does Aaron try to cram all this into 20 pages? You know, are we going to get like four pages of each plot that's going on? Or are we going to get like a couple issues of this story and then a couple issues of other parts of the story? Like, I, I just don't know, but um, it's fantastic. So I definitely recommend it. One of the better Marvel books out this week.
Uh, okay, let's move on. Next, we have uh, first Aftershock book. It's Campisi, The Dragon Incident. It's number four. This is the final issue. It's by writer James Patrick. Marco Locati does the art and colors. Rachel Deering on letters. Uh, the art, it's been very consistent throughout. It's very fine lines, but which I generally like, but it's a little more of a stylized, looser sort of style than I, I typically go for, but it does suit sort of the chaotic feel of the story. So uh, basically in this world that James Patrick has created, and, and then this story uh, could easily live in the... Um, in the same universe as his kaiju score story, which he previously did for Aftershock, which was really fantastic. Um, real quickly, just in that one, kaiju are sort of like hurricanes. You know, you have a hurricane watch, you have a kaiju watch, they come ashore, they eat, they go back out. They're not really after humans or whatever. They usually only come on shore when they're searching for food because they can't find any food out in the ocean. Um, and so this, they know kaiju is going to attack a certain city. Everybody gets evacuated typically. Um, and they sneak in and they pull a heist. Uh, so it was fantastic. So anyway, in this, in the Jason, or uh, sorry, James Patrick uh, universe, apparently dragons and krakens and kaiju and whatever, they exist. So again, this Campisi story could easily exist in that same universe. Um, and so basically what happens is this, this dragon is searching for the descendants of people who massacred his relatives, you know, other dragons way, 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 way back hundreds of years ago. And he wants to take his revenge by continuing to kill the, doesn't kill off the line, lets it creep along um, so he can keep killing people from this line. Uh, and so he goes to one particular part of New York that's uh, called the village. It's controlled by the mob, a certain mob family, uh, because he knows there's a descendant that lives there. And so the story is about this guy named Sonny, who's sort of a fixer for that mob family and it's his job to get rid of the dragon and, and make sure the village doesn't, doesn't burn down. So uh, it's a mashup of a, a crime noir sort of mob story with, uh, with a dragon and Patrick gives Sonny a great voice. It's got enough of the mob feel and mob sort of uh, I don't want to say tropes, um, but just sort of classic mob story ideas that it, it feels like a mob story with this giant thing hanging over it, right? Like a lot of times if you're telling a mob story, it's like the, the big thing, the big threat hanging over the story might be, well, the FBI is closing in or there's a, a possible war with another family who's more powerful than you or, or something like that. In this case of <laughs> this classic mob story, it's idea of this dragon who's given a deadline before he's going to destroy this this neighborhood that this mob family controls. So it all comes across as a very sort of realistic feel of a mob story. It just so happens that the big thing that's hanging over it is this dragon. And so I thought it was fantastic. I thought the character work was especially good. Like, don't get me wrong. I loved Kaiju score. It was over the top and it was a mashup of, of two completely different sort of story ideas, Kaiju and, and heists. They don't, Normally, I've never seen it put together before. Um, and that was all about the action and the, the surprising twists. Uh, this one, Patrick is, is, is a little more focused on character, a little more focused on evolution of character um, and emotion 
and loyalty. Um, and I like all, I, I like that because a lot of those times when you start talking about you know, loyalty and family and, you know, being a stand-up guy and doing the right thing or whatever, th- those are in a lot of ways also classic ideas that you would see in a, in a mob story. So all that very much exists in this story um, with that stylized art, like I said, that, that really, really suits it. And, um, and this was great. I mean, I, I've enjoyed the series throughout, but this final issue is the best issue. And it, it brought it home in a, in a fantastic way. Really, really loved it. Um, yeah, I thought it, thought it was great and perfectly paced. Four issues. You know, a lot of times after Chuck books are five issues, this was perfect at four. So good on um, James Patrick for knowing exactly how long it should have been. So uh, really, really good. Recommend that one. Uh, all right. Up next, I'm going to talk about the uh, latest issue of Captain Marvel. This is from writer Kelly Thompson. We have art in this one by Sergio Davila. Inks are by Sean Parsons. Colors are by Jesus Arbatov. Letters by Clayton Cowles. I've said it every time I talk about this Captain Marvel series that Kelly Thompson ha- gives Carol Danvers the best voice she's ever had. Not that I'm not a fan of the Kelly Sudeconic era of Captain Marvel or the Margaret Stoll era. I totally am. But for me, Kelly takes it one step further and the voice feels even more authentic. She feels more relatable, more realized, more realistic. Um, so this is the last of the Marvels part three. And we found out last issue that one of uh, Captain Marvel's sort of uh, arch enemies, I guess you'd say Vox Supreme, uh, it has this technology that he's sending out where these black suits envelop, which we you know, have seen previously, but these black suits are enveloping anybody who's had the name of Captain Marvel, and then he gets to control them. She finds out that he's behind it. Carol finds out he, he escaped from his galactic prison or wherever he was, goes after him. She gets thrown into a cage, this sort of coffin-like thing, launched into orbit, taken out uh, off, the, uh, off the playing field, so to speak. She finds a unique way to get out of that, and I like this idea from from Kelly, um, Kelly Thompson, almost said Kelly Sue, Kelly Thompson, uh, it could have ramifications for Captain Marvel going forward, which it's always good to see new things and have characters, uh, and their powers evolve. So I thought that was great. Uh, again, action packed, really well paced, great art, wonderful colors. Um, this is a, this is a fun book. Um, you know, I, I would read this and have at times the book has been very sort of character focused and, and, you know, interactions between characters. And again, because Kelly Thompson gives the most in my mind, realistic portrayal of Carol Danvers as Captain Marvel, when we get those storylines, like her interactions with, uh, Enchantress and Doctor Strange and whatnot, or, or her her friendship with uh, with Spider Woman Jessica Drew. I'm drawn in, like I love those, even if it's a little more talking heads than it's action. But at the end of the day, it is Captain Marvel, and you want a title from Marvel Comics called Captain Marvel to be full of action, like it was back in the day when it was uh, Marvel. And we get that. We totally get that here. This whole storyline has been just action-packed um, from start to finish every issue. And, and this one's no exception. And uh, again, I'll, I'll shout out the art by uh, Sergio Davila because there's a couple double-page spreads here that are 
that are fantastic. Um, but speaking of Marvell, he shows up here as well. And it's not a spoiler because he's on the cover. Um, and I do have mixed feelings about that. You know, for the longest time, he was the one and only, uh, other than maybe Uncle Ben, uh, Marvel hero who, who died and they didn't bring back. And they've sort of still kept to that. I mean, there's been a few times where um, stories have taken place in the afterlife and hell or Valhalla or whatever you want to call it. Someplace where Marvel is, he's still dead, but you know, heroes, current heroes go where he is and they, they fight alongside him. And then we did also see him resurrected um, relatively recently, but then give his life uh, to save people like he always does. And so he, he was dead again, but now bringing him back again. And I mean, He's one of my favorite characters of all time. Loved him back in the day. Just that Starlin run was, I read it when I was young. And so, you know, probably hold it in too high esteem, even because uh, the nostalgia factor is strong for me for that story. Um, and of course, the amazing death of Captain Marvel miniseries or, or a graphic novel, rather, um, first ever Marvel comics graphic novel. So I love the character. And so, in a way, I'm excited to see him back. But at the same time, I don't want to, I, like, if, can we just leave him dead in terms of it? If you bring him back, it lessens the impact of his death. And if you've ever read that graphic novel, The Death of Captain Marvel, it's so gorgeous and it's so impactful and emotional. And if you bring him back, you, you lessen all that. And I get it. That was, what, 30, 40 years ago now? Um, I guess 30, no, almost 40 years. Yeah. I think it was early eighties, 83, 81, 83, somewhere in there. Anyway. Um, I, I just feel like it lessens that. And so I'm, I have mixed feelings. So that being said, it, it is cool. He has a great costume. Um, so I guess we'll see uh, if I had to guess, I mean, this, this storyline is called the last of the Marvel. So it does make sense that you show up, but I, I have a feeling that he won't survive the the storyline. So I'll be, I'll be okay with that, but I don't know. There, there was something special about the fact that he was the one guy that never came back. Um, not even for a, you know, as a clone or cameo or, or any, or, you know, flashback ghost image, whatever. Um, they just left him alone. Uh, and he seems like he's coming back a little, a little bit more often these days, again, mixed feelings, but don't have mixed feelings about Captain Marvel. You should be reading this book. Um, I'm not sure what the highest number of previous Captain Marvel series has gone up to. Um, this may, might be the highest. Uh, I mean, it is legacy number 168. Um, so maybe it's gone. Maybe Carol Danvers has had a, a series go longer than this. I don't know, but this is far and away the best uh, Captain Marvel's ever been. Hope Kelly Thompson doesn't have any plans to leave anytime soon. I might jump off with her. Um, obviously I'd give the new writer a chance, but uh, I would just hate to see Kelly Thompson leave. So anyway, that's Captain Marvel. Uh, let's move on to the next book. It's uh, back to Aftershock with Cross to Bear, number two. Uh, this is called Tears in the Rain. It's from Marco Zoyanovic. Sinisa Bonovic is the artist. Aljoza Tomic does the colors. Taylor Esposito on letters. So obviously most of those names are Slovakian, Eastern European, Polish, maybe. Um, and this is a pretty solid story. Uh, I talked about the first issue. It's basically about this sort of secret group of, of knights, and they're sort of 
descendants. I don't know if it's descendants from the Knights of the Round Table or Knights from the Crusades or Knights from the Search for the Holy Grail, but they are knights and they are dedicated to the ideas of, of justice, sort of those old school, um, you know, ideas of chivalry, like we're talking about with, with knights and uh, one of their missions that they undertook was to take out Jack the Ripper uh, in London and they failed in that mission. And right as they were closing in on him, he, in this fictional universe, uh, he crossed the ocean, went over to America. And so he's out in the wild West now, and he's continuing his, uh, his killing spree. He's pursued by somebody from the order uh, who followed him there, who failed, uh, you know, feels guilt because he failed to stop him in London. Um, and we see, saw in last issue that that young member of the order sought out an older person of the order that actually left the order, was tired of the violence and the bloodshed and the unending tiresome mission and, and left, left Europe and came to the United States for a new start um, and settled down and, and married. Um, and so in this issue, that, that was all the setup from the first issue. So in this issue, we really get some uh, events that are a, a catalyst to move the story forward with this young member and this older member of the order who are going to uh, shift into high gear with next issue in their pursuit of, uh, of the Ripper. Um, and there's a, there's a few wild West tropes here, or there, we see some Indians, we see some vagabonds, if you will, some, you know, sort of outlaw cowboys, uh, you know, we see an old saloon town sort of, uh, setting. And so, uh, it's interesting because if you have read anything from uh, any interviews that were done with Marco Stojanovic, the writer, he talks about growing up in, in Eastern Europe. Um, it says specifically where he's from, but I can't remember. Um, maybe it was Czechoslovakia or Poland. A anyway, um, he talks about growing up and, and seeing those old classic Westerns, those old classic, uh, to him, they were foreign films, but, but American films of, of the West, right. To him, that's a, and to many, many people, the idea of, of the wet, the American West is this very romantic, um, a little bit melancholy, uh, action packed era that's uh that's a very rich setting for a story and the fact that he's taken a classic um villain jack the ripper um you know who has his roots in real life obviously but um you know the, the idea of that horrific terrorizing uh villain and juxtapose that against the the brightness of the of and the action of the old west it's a great idea um and so you know i've had people ask me well i don't i don't even know what that book's about look the art looks good but what i'm like i say hey it's jack the ripper in the wild west and everybody immediately like oh that's a, that's a cool idea like i mean you can literally sell it that quick you know just jack ripper in the wild west like five words so it's it's really good the art is solid um colors suit the tone of the story very very well and uh, i can't say more than that about it because it would be spoiling but um if you read the first one and you thought it was kind of slow and there wasn't a lot of action definitely come back for the second issue because it is action-packed 
and it promises a lot more action to come. So definitely recommend that one from, uh, from Aftershock. All right, up next, back to Marvel. Darkhold Black Bolt, number one, The Memory Trap. This is from writer Mark Russell. Pencils are by David Cutler. Robert Poggi does the inks. Matt Miller on colors. Clayton Cowell on letters. Uh, so this is tying into the Darkhold Alpha and Darkhold Omega, who know the members of the team that are going to try to stop um, Sethon in the Darkhold realm or whatever. Um, each had to read a little bit of the Darkhold book in order to get just a little bit crazy so they could travel to the um, Darkhold dimension and not go nuts, but they've all read a little bit too much and they've gone to the other side and become evil. And, and that's what we've seen so far in the stories that we've gotten, which uh, we've, we've had Darkhold Iron Man, we've had Darkhold Blade, Darkhold Wasp, and now Darkhold Black Bolt. Um, and I can't review a, a Black Bolt comic without reminding everybody that his full name is Blackagar Boltagon, just because I like saying uh, Blackagar Boltagon. Like sometimes I'll walk around my house saying Blackagar Boltagon. Uh, anyway, I probably like the name a little too much. Uh, but what's interesting about this, it, it's from Mark Russell, as I said. And you can always count on Mark Russell to sort of subvert things. Um, and I love that about him. So we get this story of Black Bolt, we think, or maybe it's a story about someone else. The point is that you're not sure. You're reading it, especially based on the other ones that you've read, right? If you've been reading all these Darkhold books, um, Iron Man was a pretty crappy guy. Blade as well, Wasp. In the end, you understand why she does what she does, but it's it's not a a good thing that she does. Uh, she's not a hero. Um, and in this one, you're reading the story of of Black Bolt, and you're going, "Well, this guy's pretty heroic." It's not. It doesn't seem dark. Right. It doesn't seem like it's it's in keeping or in tone with the rest of the Darkhold books. And then you get to the end and, you know, last couple of pages, he, Mark Russell throws something at us that all of a sudden it flips the entire story around. And you end up thinking that in a way, this could be the most scary and terrifying of all. If you're of a certain if you view it in a certain way, if you're looking at it from a certain perspective. Um, and that's all I can say about it, because again, it's, I don't want to spoil it at all because it's a, it's a big twist and it's, it's fantastic. Um, and I just thought it was great. Like I'm a big Mark Russell fan. That's all I can say. So uh, the art's interesting. It's a little bit more of a cleaner style and the colors by Matt Miller, Matt Miller, man, the guy's so talented. I've seen him do super dark saturated stuff. Like he did on, the Charles Soule run of Wonder Woman over that Ron Garney, Garney art. Um, but then over this Roberto Poggi or, uh, or uh, David Cutler pencils, rather Roberto Poggi did the inks. Um, they're fine lines and it's a sort of an alien landscape. And I won't, wouldn't go so far as to call it pastels, but it's definitely muted colors, which, you know, a, a lot of times I'll talk about the color suiting the tone of the story. For me, th these colors are all about the pacing of the story and all about the sort of the quiet feel of the story. It's a little more cerebral. They're calming colors that they're not in your face. And so it gives you time to sort of 
really absorb what's happening in the story. So a uh, fantastic job from Matt Miller. Great job from, uh, from Mark Russell. Definitely my favorite of the, uh, of the one shots for the Darkhold team as it were so far. Uh, we still have Darkhold Spider-Man to go and then Darkhold uh, Omega. So we'll see how it all ends up playing out. But uh, yeah, definitely recommend reading the story about uh, Black Agar Boltagon. Uh, okay, up next, it is uh, another Marvel to- comic. Speaking of Daredevil, we have the latest issue of Daredevil, number 36, from writer Chip Zdarsky. Manuel Garcia is on pencils. Cam Smith, Scott Hanna, and Victor Nava on inks. Don't know why we have so many inkers on this one. Marcio Menez and Brian Valenza on colors. We saw last issue that Daredevil um, left prison to stop the bullseye clones um, and then allowed himself to be taken back. We get the resolution to that here. I mean, this is lockdown part six. It's the final part. So Matt uh, Matt Murdock locked down no more. But what does that mean? Um, how does he move on with his life? How does does he does he come back to his life as Matt Murdock, where he has his you know supposed fake twin brother who somehow has become real, <laughs> continue to take his place? And he's just Daredevil now. How can he be Daredevil? and not make the same mistakes he's made in the past. What about Elektra, who's been Daredevil? Like, there's a lot of questions that Matt is going to be facing. And, uh, you know, this is the final issue before Devil's Reign, number one, which is a big Daredevil event from Zdarsky. So in a way, this is set up for that, I have a feeling, because um, there are some pretty big events that happen here, but nothing where it's like big superhero events it's a lot of, you know, set up, let's get the penguin or or the penguin, the kingpin where he needs to be. Um, Let's get Matt where he needs to be. Let's see what's going on with, uh, with Matt's brother. I can't think of what his name is. Um, But anyway, uh, all of that, all of that happens in this, in this issue. Um, And it sets up, it sets up devil's reign really, really well. Um, also the, the art, you know, we've had uh, Mike Hawthorne and Marco Cicchetto on this book for a really long time. I think Cicchetto still on it. Uh, I know Ma- Mike Hawthorne is done. He's working on some, some crater owned stuff, but um, this art really fine line work, a lot of panels. I, I do sort of wish that we got a little bit bigger panels because Manuel Garcia uh, his line work is pretty fine and he's pretty good with the details. Um, but sometimes they're hard to see because uh, the panels are so, are so small. So um, I do sort of wish they were a little bit, uh, the, the panels were a little bit bigger. We'd, we'd see the art a little bit more, but, uh, but yeah, it puts everybody in place. Like I said, um, this, his, his brother, Mike, uh, kingpin how other heroes see daredevil daredevil himself electra um and i I still don't even really know what devil's reign is about maybe it's been talked about or teased but i haven't been paying attention apparently um so i am i'm looking forward to this this is the first issue that we've had of daredevil in a while that hasn't been action-packed i mean the last five or six issues have just been non-stop action before that we had a good mix of action and character uh, so this is, again, not a ton of action here, 
um, but a lot of character work, but again, like mostly set up. And that, that I give credit to Zdarsky because these are the, these are the issues that are hardest to keep interesting and make work. Right. Because again, there's not any huge reveals here where it's makes compelling reading when it's talking heads and there's not any action to draw you in. So I, I have to imagine it's a real challenge to, uh, to keep it moving. Um, but there's a fantastic scene between Daredevil and Kingpin uh, and, and the events that, that uh, Zdarsky has set up are just interesting, interesting enough that it, it propels the, the issue along. So very curious to read Devil's Reign. Uh, can't wait for that to kick off. So um, I, I can't tell you the last time. Well, I guess it was when the Charles Soul run first kicked off the last time I was a, a regular reader of, of Daredevil. And I, I know Charles, it wasn't Charles' choice to leave the book. And that's kind of why I jumped off. That I left a bad taste in my mouth. And at the time, I wasn't a big fan of the Zdarsky work that I had read previously. So I didn't read Daredevil for a long time. And then I had people telling me, got to read Daredevil, got to read Daredevil. So good. And yeah, so I'm back to being a regular Daredevil uh, reader. And I'm, I've turned into a big Zdarsky fan. So, uh, all right, well, let's move on. Next book I'm going to talk about, uh, Department of Truth. This is issue number 14. It's from writer James Tynan. We have art by John J. Pearson. Letters are by Aditya Bidikar. Designs by Dylan Todd. Um, this is an interesting one. Flashes back to the past a little bit. We get a little history of Lee Harvey Oswald as he's first joining the Department of Truth. And he learns the origin or... or we, along with him, learn the origin of the, the Scarlet Woman. It gives some context of the story. And we also get the first appearance of Hawk Harrison when he was a little kid, which is a lot of fun. So um, I wouldn't go so far as to say this is set up, but it, it feels a little bit different. Every once in a while, we get these issues where of Department of Truth, where Tynan flashes back to the past and gives us kind of the origin of, of one part of the department or another. In this case, we're getting the origin of, of I guess, in a way, the, the big boogeyman of the series. Um, and that's interesting in, his, in its own right. Uh, and, and a lot of what happens here, Tynan does what he always does and, and ties it into real life events that if you're crazy enough, I guess you could think, man, this could really happen. Um, I don't know. I'm not a big conspiracy guy. So obviously I know this is all fictional and made up, um, but it's interesting that he does tie it into real people and real events. It does give it a layer of truth, thus the department of truth. So um, it is a talking heads issue. As I said, uh, I mean, really this whole series has been um, very dialogue driven. Um, the art by John J. Pearson, it's a little cleaner than the usual art from Martin Simmons, but it's definitely still in that style. You know, it's definitely, watercolor and sort of washed out colors. These aren't colors that are bright that are going to pop off the page, um, but it works. It, uh, the art completely works for the, the story of uh, the Scarlet Woman. So uh, Department of Truth continues to be really, really good. Um, but it's this is not a book that I would recommend to a new comic reader because um, it's not over-the-top action. It's not um, like you know, a thriller or, or a mystery that is super compelling. It's definitely a slower burn, um, but it is still really, really excellent. And if you have somebody who's a conspiracy nut, <laughs> they probably love it. 
although maybe you don't want to encourage that type of thinking or behavior. I don't know. Uh, anyway, up next, another Marvel book, Darkhawk, from writer Kyle Higgins. Juan and Ramirez is the artist. Eric Arsenega does the colors. Travis Lanham on letters. We saw at the end of last issue that um, Darkhawk had tracked down Mr. Colt, who was the leader of the gang that got um, Connor's best friend. Connor, who's the new Darkhawk, got Connor's best friend, Derek, involved in some crime and eventually killed Derek. And so Connor's out for revenge was going after Colt, but um, he was unsuccessful. There was an explosion, got thrown in the river. Miles Morales fished him out, and that's where we ended the last issue. So in this issue, we get um, some pretty good back and forth between Miles and Connor with Miles sort of playing the the role of mentor, um, which is fun, but even Miles himself is kind of, he knows I'm, I'm not really the guy to, to be a mentor you know what i mean like he's still young and learning as well that's how he feels anyway so as we see on the cover uh he calls in a a heavy hitter he calls in captain uh, america so it ends up being uh the three of them teaming up to go after uh colt which is which is interesting and uh, the other part that i love about this book beyond the dynamic and how captain america and and miles sort of accept Connor as Darkhawk and uh, are encouraging him to uh, to do his best and to, and to be a superhero and, and they trust him. I mean, it's that old trope, right? Thank God that Kyle Higgins didn't fall into it where when you see uh, two characters, Marvel characters meet for the first time, they always got to fight first before they realize they're on the same side. We didn't, they didn't do that. Thank God. Um, but anyway, beyond the dynamic between the three, uh, the other thing that I loved is that, Kyle Higgins continually reminds us about Connor's situation with his MS diagnosis and how it's thrown his entire future into question. I mean, here was a guy that had like a full ride scholarship to go to college to play basketball. Everybody assumed he would only play one year and then make the jump to the NBA. And now this MS diagnosis, multiple sclerosis has thrown his entire life into a shambles. And uh, it's just true to life. I mean, that happens to people that exact thing, you know, maybe not for somebody who's, destined to be an NBA star, but there are people, you know, there are high school age kids that get diagnosed with this and it, it, you know, the whole life that they had, that they thought they had planned out or pictured in their head. Not that many of us, or maybe I could even go as far as to say any of us really end up with the life we envision when we're, you know, a junior or senior in high school, but we certainly don't dream of getting MS. Right. Um, and Kyle Higgins has, has made that a big part of the story, even to the point where last issue we had a, a writer uh, who has MS that did uh, an interview with Kyle. And then uh, this one, there's a, in the back matter, there's an interview with a, a Dr. Lauren Krupp uh, with Kyle Higgins. And she's uh, talking about choosing how she chose to specialize in uh, multiple sclerosis and, and whatnot. She's a, she's a neurologist. So uh, again, kudos to Kyle for it's a, it's a good topic, something more people need to be aware of. It's, a, it's an incurable disease. It can be managed um, through medication, and some people can lead, lead you know, relatively normal lives. Um, but you know, it is something we're still searching for a, a cure for. So uh, kudos to Kyle for keeping that in, um, in the forefront. Um, this has been like the first issue. I wasn't a big fan. Issue two and three brought in a lot of action and emotion. This bring this issue brings even more action, uh, not a lot of emotion, but some good character work. Like I said, with the 
interactions between Miles and Connor and Captain America and Connor and even a little bit with Miles and, and, and uh, Cap. So uh, great job, wonderful art, great color work. Um, I I will never read previously any of the old Darkhawks from the 90s, um, so I can't compare it at all. Um, and I don't know that I've seen a lot of old school. I mean, how many were there? How many Darkhawk fans were there? I haven't seen anybody online saying, ah, I was a Darkhawk fan back in the 90s and I loved this new one. But it would be curious if you were a fan of the Darkhawk book back in the 90s and you're loving this new one, let me know. Reach out on uh, Twitter. I'd be curious if this is scratching that Darkhawk itch for all you Darkhawk fans out there. Uh, okay, up next we have Death of Doctor Strange, Spider-Man number one. So this is a tie-in for uh, the Death of Doctor Strange miniseries that's by Jed McKay. This one's also written by Jed McKay. Marcelo Ferreira does the pencils. Wayne Falker is on inks. Andrew Crosley and Peter uh, Pantazes on colors. And then Joe Caramagna does letters. This is a really fun one. So when I say Spider-Man, this is Ben Riley Spider-Man because like I talked about an amazing Spider-Man when we reviewed it, Peter Parker's in a coma, Ben Riley's wearing the costume. And that's sort of the part of the problem, right? So Black Cat is visiting Peter while he's in the hospital. Ben Riley swings by. Black Cat's giving Ben Riley a bad time. Oh, so you're taking advantage of Pete while he's in a coma to steal his, you know, superhero gig and you know how fiercely protective Felicia can be of, of Parker. And while they're there in the hospital room, because Doctor Strange is dead, he had set up these spells to send messages out to certain people upon his death and Spider-Man being one of those because Dr. Strange implicitly trusted Spider-Man. So he's basically given Spider-Man a to-do list. Okay. In the case that I die, here's some things that maybe you weren't even aware of that I was taking care of around the city that I need you to take care of. And of course, Black Cat's not all about to let Ben Riley go do these things on his own and tarnish the good name of Spider-Man. So she tags along and it ends up being this night where they, they sort of learn things about one another. Uh, Black Cat and Ben Riley, that is, um, and about Doctor Strange and and what he meant to the city. And so it's a it's a feel good story, despite the fact that sort of the catalyst of it is the death of Doctor Strange. Uh, but there's humor, there's action, uh, there's great art, wonderful color work, really great panel layouts in this one. Um, I, I really enjoyed that. A lot of unique page designs um, from Marcelo Ferreira. So this was a lot of fun, bringing some context into that death of Dr. Strange miniseries and reminding us that strange is a lot more than just the guy that, you know, made sure the magical barrier around earth was intact so that we weren't invaded from all these other magical realms. He wasn't just the big guy or the big gun stopping these gigantic world ending magical threats. He was taking care of a lot of little things too. And, uh, it humanizes Dr. Strange in a lot of ways. So, uh, and plus the dynamic between Ben Riley and black cat is handled very, very well by Jed McKay. Jed McKay writes the black cat regular series. So it makes sense that he has a good handle on who Felicia Hardy is. So really, really great issue. Um, and, and I'm, I've really been enjoying the death of Dr. Strange uh, event, I guess we'll call it. Cause we've had some tie in one shots, as well as the regular series and, and everything's been excellent so far. Uh, and we actually have a second death of Dr. Strange mini uh, or, or one shot rather. So death of Dr. Strange white Fox is also out today. Um, and this one's written by Alyssa Wong, Andy Tong and Luciano Vecchio. 
are the artists. Arif Prianto does colors, Travis Lenham on letters. So White Fox is um, a member of the, the Korean superhero team, the Tiger Division, which we saw in the Black Cat uh, annual this, uh, this year. So again, Jed McKay's running the Death of Doctor Strange event. So it makes sense that he would bring in these Korean characters that uh, he had in the Black Cat uh, annual. But it's fun. We, you know, these are, these are new characters that we don't have a heck of a lot of background. At least I don't have a lot of knowledge of who they are. Um, but it's, it's great to see, once again, adding context, what, what does it mean that Doctor Strange is gone? It means much more than, we, than you might first think, right? So again, I was talking about how he protects the, the Earth by having that magical barrier that kept other realms from invading other magical realms. And now that he's dead, we have people invading and not just in America. Hey, they're invading all over the world. Um, and it's up to Tiger Division, these Korean superheroes, to, to stop them. And um, and they end up having to split up because there's multiple threats. And uh, again, it, it gives a lot of context for this character, White Fox, who's, um, you know, I don't know a lot about Asian mythology. And I don't even know if it's specific to Korean mythology. I think it is uh, when you talk about Kumiho, which are... Um, shape-shifting fox spirits, and that's what White Fox is. Uh, that's this member of the, the Tiger Division. So it's a chance for writer Alyssa Wong to, I think, lean into some of her heritage and to give us more context for White Fox and give us more context for these characters. And I would say, like, based on what I've seen so far of Tiger Division, I would 100% be interested in reading a three or four issue mini about these characters, uh, especially if Alyssa Wong is the one writing it because I, I thought she gave great voices to these characters wonderful team interactions uh the art by andy tong and luciana vecchio is very very good the colors are solid very dynamic i wouldn't have minded a little bit bigger panels in this one as well um but they, they cram a lot into 32 pages um so i can see why the panels need to be so small it's, it's a big chunk of story and it feels like it um but the line work is so beautiful that i kind of want to see it bigger you know um which i can by zooming in on my digital preview copy but you know you know what i'm saying it's not quite the same so anyway a lot a lot laid out on these pages a uh, lot crammed in here as i said doesn't feel um as tied into dr strange uh as the spider-man issue does it's more like okay dr strange is gone and that's why all these mystical creatures that we're fighting have invaded so it's more about state of the world and about giving us more context for these characters in this book than it is giving us context for Dr. Strange is gone. Look what he meant to us. So, um, but again, a great job by Jed McKay of giving us these tie-ins that are looking at the death of Dr. Strange from different perspectives to give uh, a more overall well-rounded story. Uh, okay. Up next, we have uh, fantastic Four Thirty-Eight. This is from writer Dan Slott. Francesco Mana is the artist. Jesus Arbatov on colors. Joe Caramani on letters. Not sure on the timing of this, but we do see She-Hulk back in her more familiar Jen Walters form. And what I mean by that is she's not like in her human form, but she's in her I'm She-Hulk and I'm green and I'm thin and I'm beautiful form as opposed to the sort of sh savage She-Hulk that she'd been in the Avengers for a long time and where she looked like a man that I was talking about earlier that I didn't care for. 
So, um, and she's in that form because the Fantastic Four, um, well, more accurately, I guess I should say the Future Foundation has been served with some papers for a legal matter. And so they hired Jen to come and defend them against a, a very classic Fantastic Four villain who has come up with a unique way to um, sort of attack the Fantastic Four. And you can see it coming if you're a fan of any sort of courtroom drama, TV shows or movies or whatever. You can see exactly what's going on here. Um, and you, I'm sort of surprised um, and a little disappointed and maybe think Dan Slott's not giving enough credit for, to the Fantastic Four for falling for these legal machinations, despite what Jen Walters is telling them. Like, they should know better. Have they never watched an episode of Law and Order or never watched a courtroom drama movie or anything like that? It is fun. You know, I... I I'm a fan of those sorts of stories, courtroom drama and whatnot. I'm a fan of law. I thought about becoming a lawyer at one point, actually. Uh, Constitutional law, especially, was fascinating to me. But uh, anyway, it's a good story. And just like almost every Dan Slott Fantastic Four story I've read, at the core of the story is family. And that's exactly what should be at the core of every Fantastic Four story. So, um, I'm a big fan of, of slot on fantastic one. There's some people that don't like what he's been doing with uh, Marvel's first family, but, I, but I've been a fan. It's been a long time since I've been a regular fantastic four reader, but, uh, but Dan slot has me uh, pretty happy with, with what's going on right now. Uh, also, I'll mention the Francesco Mana art is, is pretty solid. Um, again, being a courtroom drama, it's, it's not exactly the most action, but he, he keeps it moving. Um, which is especially challenging because there's a lot of dialogue. I mean, when you talk about a story without any big giant fights, but um, antagonists and protagonists facing off in a courtroom, you're going to get a lot of word balloons. And we certainly get a lot here. It's a heavy lifting for slot on the scripting. Um, and so it can be challenging as an artist to keep that uh, interesting uh, visually. And he does a great job. So uh, good issue of Fantastic Four. Curious to see how it all shakes out. Uh, okay, up next, this is the first issue. I, I normally don't read Mark Millar or Mark Miller um, books anymore because I just sort of feel like they're rehashing a lot of same old ideas. But um, Rocky read this and reviewed it, and and so I kind of wanted to give it a try. But unfortunately, it kind of ended up being what I expected it to be, which is not to say I'm not going to read the second issue because uh, it is fun. But again, it's a story that, you know, we've we've seen before uh so it's called king of spies as i said written by mark miller mateo scalera is the artist giovanni nero does the colors clem robbins does the letters and it's basically the story of this james bond like super spy that has you know lived through the the cold war and and the decadence of the 80s and the the ultra nationalism of the late nineties into the the two thousands. And he's, he's sort of retired and he, he finds out, um, or as he's getting older, I guess he, he thinks about what he's contributed to as a, as a spy, you know, when he looks at the world around him um, and, and maybe instead of trying to feather his nest, he should have been a little more cognizant of, of how he was used, you know, sort of as a, as a spy, as a soldier, you think of yourself as just a tool or a weapon to be pointed and you do what your superiors tell you to do. 
and you don't stop to ask if if it's actually in the best interest of of the people of your country or the world at large. And so, um, you know, this guy gets some some bad news, and and he may not have long for the world, and he decides, well how can he make up for the thing for the mistakes that he's made and the guilt that he feels? Um, well, he's going to go out in a blaze of glory. So again, this is not a, <laughs> a groundbreaking original idea. Um, that being said, it is action packed. The art's dynamic. Uh, I wasn't a big fan of the colors, a lot of reds and oranges. Um, and it, it just didn't have enough in my mind, variety of color. Um, and it's fine. It's, it doesn't need to be super bright colors and pop off the page. You want it to feel a little more, uh, you know, crime nourish or, or realistic or what, what have you. I'm fine with that, but it's just very bland colors, a lot of oranges and browns. Um, and it just doesn't, I don't think it does the art work. Um, it's not in service. The color is not in service of the artwork um, with the exception of the last page, probably, which is colored very well. And, so it's a completely different mood than the rest of the book. Um, so it is a fun ride, but it's not original at all. So uh, I don't know, pick it up and flip through it. And if you think it looks interesting, I guess, pick it up. Um, but it's not one that I would, I would really recommend. Um, even though, like I said, I'm going to read, probably read at least the next issue. Uh, okay. Up next, another Aftershock title. Been anxiously awaiting this one. It's The Return of Maniac of New York. This one's called Maniac of New York, The Bronx is Burning. It's from writer Elliot Kalin. And the art is by co-creator uh, Andrea Moody. So if you followed along with uh, the first volume, you know that we loved it, both Jay and I. Um, and this picks up right where that left off with um, the two officers who were on the, the death train, as it were, um, trying to do their trying to do their best to track down the uh the killer so uh, the, the maniac as it were um so we have zelda we have green and they're doing the best they can uh they're in the bronx this time for whatever reason even though the maniac doesn't typically go there he's he's there this time and we still have the other events that happen on the train um and i'm gonna spoil sorry if first volume was months ago should have read it by now um when they were on that that automated train on the first day of this automated subway that's supposed to be great for commuters of new york and um the maniac got on the train and killed almost everybody on it and zelda and green uh, two cops were able to to rescue a few people off of it and part of the reason they were is because when they got close to the natural history museum uh the maniac sort of paused and a little girl on the train was one of the few that got saved and she's put that together. She's put together the connection. And I think she was on a field trip, if I remember right, to the museum and saw a symbol um, on a display at the museum that's very uh, similar to the symbol on the, that's on the mask of the, um, the maniac. So clearly something that ties him into that. And so we still have that subplot going on while uh, the maniac is, is loose in the Bronx and uh, these two cops are, are on his trail. So a bit of a setup issue getting us acclimated to what's going on in the Bronx and what the maniac's up to. We still get a couple of brutal death scenes. Um, one of them you almost feel like based on the characterization, Elliot Kalen gives the character. It's, it's almost, 
I don't want to say you, you're happy the guy's dead, but it's a little bit of karma, I guess we'll say. Uh, and then the Adrian Moody art just, it suits the book wonderfully. Um, very visceral, very impactful, especially, like I said, those couple death scenes where the colors are just as dynamic as the, the art is. It's not for the faint of heart, definitely for mature readers, but I'm very glad Maniac of New York is back. Um, probably have to have Elliot back, Elliot back on the show to talk about it. Uh, we haven't had him on since the, I think the first or second issue dropped. I think right before the second issue dropped, the, the Monday before the second issue dropped. So been quite a while, but um, a lot of people love this. It, it got greenlit for a second volume very quickly from Aftershock. Um, so that just goes to show the, the popularity of it. So definitely recommend that one. Uh, okay. Up next, we have uh, another image title. This is The Me You Love in the Dark. And this is from uh, Scotty Young. Art is by Jorge Corona. Colors by Jean-Francois Bellu. Letters by Nate Picos of Blambot. This is the final issue. It's the fifth issue. Um, and we get the resolution uh, of Rowena, or Ro, who's this painter who bought this house that turned out to be haunted or possessed or in some way inhabited by this supernatural being um, who she let herself sort of be subsumed by and, and never left. And they've become codependent <laughs> and in a way it's it's sort of the uh the epitome of a codependent uh relationship uh and maybe it was exactly what rowena was susceptible to at exactly the right or wrong time depending on your perspective um and so this is the resolution of the story uh and i think it's resolved well and uh, the best art of the series from jorge corona Gorgeous colors from Jean-Francois Bellu, who I've, I've praised throughout um, in this story, because when he did Middle West with uh, the same creative team, uh, the, the palette was so much brighter and, and different. Um, and, and this is m much more dark uh, because it's a dark story. And so I love the character arc that, um, that Scotty Young has taken Roe on. Uh, wouldn't have minded a little more follow-up from her. Um, but I, I'm fine with the way that it, it all played out. Um, it puts a little bit on the reader to sort of make some assumptions about Roe uh, and, and how she comes out of the other side of this. But I think that's okay. I don't, I don't mind leading it, uh, leaving a little bit of it up to the reader, but I also wouldn't have minded a little more context. Um, so if I ever get Scotty on, which we, we have talked about having him on many times, uh, but he's just so busy, it's hard to make it happen. But I promise we'll we'll talk about this if we ever get him on, because um, I do want sort of his perspective, uh, you know, as the the voice of of Rowena on how it all came out in the end for uh, for that book. So fan, it's a it's a horror story, which you know I'm not the biggest fan of horror stories, but I'm I'm definitely a fan of that. Uh, series. I think um, that creative team, I hope they do something else. Uh, and I hope it's not sort of adventure fantasy like Middle West was. And I hope it's not horror. I hope it's something else completely different, like maybe a, a Western or a crime story, just to see them, that same team get together again and do something completely different. Uh, okay. Up next is another Marvel book. 
It's Phoenix Song Echo Number no. 2 from Rebecca Roanhorse. We have art by Luca Marcheska. Oh, I'm sorry, Luca Maresca and Kyle Charles. Colors are by Carlos Lopez and Brian Valenza. Letters by Ariana Mayer. Um, I'm really loving this book. I, I wasn't really that familiar with the character of Echo. Uh, I know she has Native American roots. And so I love the fact that this is written by a Native American who's bringing in a lot of ideas um, and sort of Native American mythos. And we even get a little bit of time travel in this one. And other than that, I can't really say much about the story um, other than to say that the antagonist that's pursuing Echo is pursuing her with the intent of taking the Phoenix force from her for reasons. <laughs> I don't want to spoil it for you. Um, so I think this is doing an incredible job of bringing context and fleshing out the character of Echo. Um, Rebecca Roanhorse certainly portrays Echo as somebody who's not 100% confident, not, not just because she's only recently gotten the Phoenix Force and the Phoenix Force is basically uncontrollable. Even beyond that, like take away the Phoenix Force and the level of uncertainty and self-doubt that that adds, you can tell that there's, um, there's doubt beyond that. There's doubt that Echo carries around because of not knowing her parents, because of not being raised by them, because of, you know, who she is and, and how she was raised and her dis disability of, of being deaf and all that sort of colors who she is and her level of confidence. And it comes across as a young woman who's just, she hasn't matured. She hasn't come into herself. She hasn't discovered who she is, but it feels like that's exactly what Roan Horse is going to do. going to, in this story, take us on a journey or take Echo on a journey where Echo's going to discover who she is at the same time that she's learning more about her heritage. And it may be, in fact, that that education, that information that she gains about her own heritage, that's going to help her sort of form her own identity and realize who she is, which will then in turn lead to her having more confidence. So uh, again, wasn't a, I didn't know, hadn't read a single book with echo in it previous to this first issue, uh, which when I first read it or picked it up, I thought it was a one shot, which is why I read, well, I don't know much about echo. Let me check it out. And then it ended on a, you know, total cliffhanger. Um, I'm like, oh, I guess there's more to come. Uh, and I'm glad there is because this is a really fantastic. And, and the whole team does a great job, uh, pretty bright colors, which get, helps to give it a super hero feel, uh, great line work, emotional art, great facial expressions. Um, if I had any complaint about the art, it's a little light on the backgrounds at times. Wouldn't mind a little more detail there, but it's a, it's a minor nitpick. Uh, overall, I, I'm really enjoying this book. Um, and every time I, I read it, I'm like, man, I, I need to, uh, I need to read more about Echo. And, you know, if I'm going to go back and read Jason Aaron's Thor run, well, that's where Echo got the Phoenix Force. So I guess that'll dovetail nicely. Uh, okay, up next, another Aftershock book. This is The Search for Hugh, number three. Goodbye, love. Goodbye. 
Uh, it's from Joe Sue and Steve Orlando as the writers. Rubin is the artist. DC Alonzo does the colors. Carlos M. Mangual on the letters. This is crime. Uh, this is crime families fighting amongst themselves uh, and somebody who uh, was a soldier at one point and has a particular set of skills. It's very skilled in sort of violence and guns and weapons and survival and whatnot, who was trying to live a peaceful life. Uh, but his parents were attacked and he's assuming we don't, we still don't know exactly who attacked them or why, but he assumes it's because of what his mother tells him about how she's part of this family back in China. Who's a, a big crime family. And she ran away from all that and it must be her past catching up to her. Um, so, so he goes there to try to find out who was behind it and and make sure that nobody's going to endanger his parents again. Um, and so his name, his name's Aaron. He goes there. He finds these two families at war with each other, tries to help them reconcile. That doesn't work out. And by the end of this issue, all the pieces are in place for a lot of action to come. Uh, I got to think this is at least a five issue, if not a six, because we're halfway through. And it feels like we've hit a big milestone in this issue where the, the crap's about to hit the fan. And uh, I, I sort of love the journey that um, that the writers, Steve Orlando and John Sue have, have uh, it might be Suey. I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing it wrong. It's T-S-U-E-I, T-S-U-E-I, yeah. Uh, Suey, maybe it's Suey. Um, anyway, these two writers uh, have taken Aaron just in the three issues already on, on an arc. Uh, he's already, <laughs> we've already seen different perspectives. We've seen his, his sort of thought process play out through uh, his actions and, and how he's choices he's made and how he's tried to protect his parents, which has in some small way um, affected the choices that his, this family that he just met that he's a part of, but that's um, embroiled in this, power struggle with uh, the other crime family who they're related to, but have split off from Aaron's actions have, have colored the dynamic between the two families. And so, like I said, next couple issues going to be a lot of action, a lot of, <laughs> a lot of action, probably a bloodbath. Uh, and the art's fantastic. Fine lines, great color. Um, just, suits the mood of the comic perfectly this is a page turner uh yeah really really excited to uh see the next couple issues of that and how it all plays out uh okay up next we have the last issue of winter guard this is issue number four it's from writer ryan caddy uh line work by Jan basildua colors by frederico blee with fernando fuentes proto bunker and letters by uh, ariana mare um, this is a bunch of Russian characters and, and I sort of feel like the reason they put this book out was because the black widow movie that just came out. And also because, you know, Marvel's got to put these characters in a book every once in a while to make sure they maintain the, the copyright and the trademarks for them. That being said, for whatever reason, this book was made, Ryan Caddy makes the most of it. These are not characters I'm really that familiar with, you know, Crimson Dynamo, obviously I've heard of. Uh, and read stories, Dark Star as well, um, Ursa Major as well. You know, 
part of the Soviet super soldiers back in the day, but Vostok, not that familiar with Perrin red widow. I've seen a little bit. And I think that's one of the villains in the, in the uh, black widow movie. Like I said, uh, Chernabog, never heard of Vanguard. I wasn't sure about um, white widow, Yelena Belova only because I'm reading black widow and then red guardian, you know, he's sort of the Soviet version of captain America. He's been around forever. So obviously I've heard of him, but never have I gotten so much context for these characters and the way they interact with each other. And I think Caddy did a great job of, of referencing their history, but still keeping it new reader friendly and also sort of leaning into the Russian heritage of the, the characters. So this was a very fun story that felt Eastern European, felt Russian, um, made sense to have these all these different Russian characters sort of at odds with each other. Um, and by not bringing in any American heroes or, or more popular or well-known heroes in the book to be antagonists for these Russian characters, but instead having these Russian and Eastern European characters um, sort of fighting amongst themselves brought an interesting dynamic and it allowed the spotlight to stay on these characters as opposed to the spotlight being pulled away uh, from them. If, you know, winter soldier or captain America or somebody like that showed up. So I, I appreciated that. I appreciated the, the interaction, the lack of trust between the teammates makes sense. The way they reconcile makes sense. I just thought this was really good. Um, and it shows that, that more people should be paying attention to the work that Ryan Caddy is doing. Um, the art was spectacular from Jan Basildua, um, had interesting, uh, interesting covers that almost looked like Mondo artwork covers. So I thought that was done really, really well. Uh, and I was unsure about this one cause, just cause mostly I don't know these characters very well at all. Um, but I, I, tr I do trust Ryan Caddy. Like I said, I don't think enough people pay attention to his work. Um, and this really worked for me and uh, I feel like. With each subsequent issue, it got better, and uh, and the ending is completely satisfying, well-paced for the four issues, a lot of action, good dialogue, everything is clear, easy to follow, because um, when you have this many characters, and there's not a lot of plot threads, but again, it's, it's mostly about the interaction and, and the relationships between the characters, it can be a challenge, like look at Teen Titans Academy, how that in eight, we've had twice as many uh, issues so far up to issue eight. And I feel like we haven't had the character development or clear line of story and clear line of, of character um, character arcs that we've had in, in four issues of this. So uh, it's not easy to do with a, with a, a big cast like we have here. Um, and Ryan Caddy does a good job. I mean, there there's 10 characters here, right? We've got red guardian, White Widow, Crimson Dynamo, Red Widow, Vostok, Perrin, Chernobog, Vanguard, Darkstar, and Ursa Major. And they all get their time in the spotlight. And we get to see interactions between, you know, a lot of these different characters. So that's a, that's a great job by Ryan Caddy. So um, if you haven't picked up any of the issues, definitely recommend picking up the trade. It's definitely worth reading just to familiarize yourself um, with these characters, if nothing else. Because again, it's a good story. It's a fun story, well-paced, a lot of action. Um, and it, it shows the kind of breadth of 
the library of characters that Marvel has, uh, you know, that, that Ryan can reach out and tell a story about their Eastern European or Russian characters with no American characters or, or well-known characters, like I said, and, and still craft a, a really good story, an interesting story that, you know, a couple of these characters I would love to read more about um, or learn more about. Maybe I'll pull out my official handbook of the Marvel universe and, and read up on some of these characters I haven't, uh, haven't seen in a while. Uh, okay. On to the last book. It's trial. It's X-Men, the trial of Magneto. We're up to issue number three. This is from writer Leah Williams. Art is by Lucas Wernock and David Messina. Edgar Delgado does the colors, Clayton Cowell on letters, Tom Muller on design. First of all, let me say the art in this book is spectacular. Color work also very emotional, very action-packed, a lot of beautiful layouts. I mean, it's Scarlet Witch. She's, uh, you know, supposed to be a very beautiful character. All of that is done really well. There's emotion in this book that is conveyed not just expertly through facial expression, but very much through body language. Uh, Body language is very important in this book and with Scarlet Witch as a character, because so much of what she does, and if you, if you're a fan of the MCU and you've seen uh, what's her name, Elizabeth Olsen um, play Scarlet Witch when she's using her powers, it's very much about body language, right? She's flipping her hands and fingers around and whatnot. So that's all done really, really well. Now I said, I think when I reviewed the first issue that I wondered if this death of the Scarlet Witch was a way for, I speculated, um, for a way from Marvel to sort of get rid of the, some of the more problematic parts of Scarlet Witch. Like she's the one that no more mutants. And, you know, I talked about maybe in a way Marvel's kind of done Scarlet Witch dirty because of the powers that she has to be able to alter reality that she has in many ways been used to be this like um, this plot device when Marvel wants to do something big. Oh, we'll just get Scarlet Witch to do it. We, we want to cut down from thousands of mutants to only 198. We'll just get Scarlet Witch to do it, you know? And then she ends up having to wear that as like the Scarlet Letter that she carries around with her and everybody judges her. Um, and with what we see in this issue, I'm starting to think that maybe I'm right about that. You know, we did see Scarlet Witch, even though it's a trial of Magneto, he's on tr- supposedly on trial for killing Scarlet Witch, um, even though we don't know yet who did it. Um, but then Scarlet Witch returned last issue in issue three without her memories. So is that a way to, like I said, reset Scarlet Witch and set her up for whatever Marvel has up for her next? I, I don't know. Uh, but what I will say is that Leah Williams, is, the writer's done a great job of keeping the mystery going. Um, we haven't gotten a lot of development for Scarlet Witch yet. Don't know who she is now that she's come back. And I sort of want Leah Williams to do a Scarlet Witch series after this. Like, who is she really? Like, again, Marvel's done so many different things with her um, that I sort of feel like she's never really gotten the spotlight for me to really understand who she is like take away her powers in terms of using her powers as um, a substitute for her characterization and just let me know who scarlet which 
you know, who is Wanda Maximoff on her own? Like if she didn't have powers, what would her personality be like? What drives her? What motivates her? What does she care about? Um, I don't know that I've ever read anything that really told me that story other than when she was married to the vision and she had kids, she was all about being a mother. That's all she seemed to care about. And then, you know, we all know what happened with that situation. I think it was part of a TV show by I'm remembering correctly from things that I heard. I've not seen it. WandaVision is what I'm referring to. Um, But I am enjoying this. Uh, It's been, I won't say that the mystery is being dragged out, but it's being, I'll say it's being parceled out well to keep it engaging and compelling. Um, We get a little bit of a clue in each issue, like right at the end. Hey, come back for the next issue because we're going to get this answer. And the next issue, we're going to get the answer to this. The next issue, we're going to answer that. Obviously, it's going to end with us knowing, okay, who killed her? Hopefully, we're going to know why. But at the end of the day, what I want more than anything is just to understand Wanda Maximoff uh, even better. So great series. Highly anticipate when it comes out. Uh, One of the first books I read when it comes out. Uh, quickly becoming a huge fan of uh, Leah Williams. So uh, yeah, so that's going to do it for the books that I'm talking about in, uh, in detail. Uh, I mentioned uh, Wonder Woman Historia as my, my book of the week for, uh, from Marvel. If I have to pick a book of the week um, amongst these, um, it's kind, it's kind of tough. I mean, there, there were some really, really great books this week. I mean, that dark old black book, uh, black bolt book was, was fantastic. Um, you know, search for Hugh was very good. Uh, the book I just talked about great having maniac of New York back also great, but uh, at the end of the day, I got to go with a pick that actually even surprises me. Um, the Avengers 50, I think is my my book of the week for, for this episode, just because it did such a great job of being new reader friendly, but referencing things that Aaron has written uh, recently uh, and set up the Avengers for, uh, for a long time. Plenty of story ideas in there that were introduced that could keep uh, Aaron writing Avengers for a really long time. So um, hats off to uh, hats off to to Jason Aaron for a, a fantastic job. So let me go down the list of some other books that you might want to be on the lookout for today. Uh, we get the conclusion of the Dune House of Atreides uh, maxi series over at Boom Studios with issue 12 of 12 coming out. Uh, we have Magic Master of Metal number one uh, at Boom as well. And that's a Magic the Gathering comic. Um, I want to mention at Dark Horse, there's a She Could Fly volume three fight or flight trade paperback that um, finishes up that story, which I can't wait to get my hands on Um, over at DC. Again, we've covered these on our episode yesterday, action comics, number 1037, Batman, 2021 annual number one, Batman fear state, Omega number one, Batman, the detective number six, detective comics, 2021 annual number one, Gotham city villains, anniversary giant number one, uh, Hardware Season 1, Number 3, Human Target, Number 2 of 12, with gorgeous art by Greg Smallwood and a charming story 
from Tom King. Uh, were it not for Wonder Woman Historia, that human target would have been my book of the week, no doubt. Uh, Joker also gets a 2021 annual. Justice League Dark, 2021 annual number one. Justice League Incarnate, number one of five. Nightwing, 2021 annual number one. Robin, 2021 annual number one. Yeah, like I said, a lot of books, a lot of annuals. Uh, Teen Titans Academy, number eight. Wonder Girl, number five. Wonder Woman 2021 annual number one. And finally, Wonder Woman Historia, the Amazons number one of three. Black Label book, Kelly Sue DeConnick, Phil Jimenez on art. Must read. If you only want buy if you're only buying one book this week, that is the week. That is the book that you need to buy without question. Absolutely fantastic. Uh, over at Image, we've got the 49th issue of Deadly Class. Firepower uh, is up to number 18 from Kirkman and Somni. Uh, Magic Order, its second volume, is up to number two of six. That's also by Mark Miller. And then we have Scumbag 11, which I'm not 100% sure that that one came out because I didn't get a preview copy for it. So maybe that one's next week. Not sure. Uh, and then Spawn number, uh, number 324. Uh, over at Marvel, in addition to the books that I talked about, we have uh, Marauders number 26. We have Marvel's number six. New Mutants, number 23. Uh, and then in the Star Wars corner of the universe, Star Wars Bounty Hunters, 18. Star Wars Darth Vader, number 18. And uh, Venom, number two, which obviously is in the regular universe, not in the uh, Star Wars corner. Uh, from Scout Comics, I'll mention White Ash, season two, number one, as that makes a, uh, that makes, uh, a return. And uh, I have to mention from... Uh, where to go from vault because it's a particular favorite of Jay's last book. You'll ever read number four uh, is out this week as well. So those are some other books you might want to be on the lookout for today. Uh, and that's going to do it for this episode. Everybody, as always, I want to thank you for joining, wishing you all a very festive holiday season, and we will talk to you next time. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes, as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.